Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The Netflix limited documentary series Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, tells the spellbinding true story of how one of the most notorious serial killers in American history was hunted down and brought to justice. In the sweltering summer of 1985, a record-breaking heat wave hit Los Angeles, along with a series of murders and sexual assaults that at first seemed disconnected. The victims were men, women, and children. They ranged in age from 6 to 82. They came from different neighborhoods, racial backgrounds, and socioeconomic levels. And the film is, this is an amazing documentary film. And especially if you're someone who was alive and living in Los Angeles during this period of time, it it's seared into your memory like little else. Uh, the film, again, is called Night Stalker, The Hunt for the, a Serial Killer. We're joined today by the director, Tiller Russell. Tiller, welcome to Film School Radio. Mike, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm grateful to be here. I lived through this uh, period of time, and it is what I said. It just you can't forget it. It was it was really kind of a, a visceral sense of of the unknown and the fear, and people were reacting uh, in ways that uh, that truly felt like they were afraid. How did you come to this story? What prompted this documentary project? Well, I, I feel like in a funny way. Um, Every movie I make is in some way the same movie. Um, you know, the 7-5 is Operation Odessa, is The Last Narc, is Night Stalker, is my forthcoming feature film, Silk Road. In some way, all of them are a portrait of the criminal underworld and um, the cops and gangsters who inhabit it, and then sometimes the thin and porous line between the two. So in this particular instance, I was uh, writing for a TV show at the time, and uh, my producing partner on it, Tim Walsh, came to me and he said, you know, I just uh, I just sat down with the homicide cop that worked the Night Stalker case. And I think there's an amazing documentary in there. You know, you want to go out to dinner with this guy. And, and my my answer is 100 percent of the time. Absolutely. And I went out and sat down um, in this old, you know, L.A. kind of dive bar, uh, you know, classic L.A. joint Monty's on, in the valley for anyone who's curious steak in a martini joint. And I sat down with um, Gil Carrillo. And as I'm sitting there looking at him in this, you know, background that felt like it could have been right out of the 1985, and he's unfurling the story of what happened to him and what that long, hot, terrifying summer was like and how deeply it had impacted him as a human being, instantaneously, I just realized I had to tell the story. It is all of that. And I even remember law enforcement people were talking up to women particularly that if they were if if somebody looked like they were trying to pull them over take precaution go to a place where there's a lot of people around i mean they, they were actually almost encouraging people to not disobey law enforcement but certainly to take every precaution that they could for fear of now you know for fear of this could be somebody who might kill them it was a real sense a palpable sense of uh, terror during that period of time I think the reason why that panic was so deep and, and profound is there was this sense of anybody could be next. Wherever you lived in the city, 
whatever socioeconomic background, whatever racial background, there was this sense that nobody was safe. And the Night Stalker was you know, breaking into these homes and getting people, uh, attacking people when they were at their most vulnerable, you know, asleep right. in bed. Right. So it, it is a, it's a, it's terrifying. It's a terrifying notion to this day. If anything goes bump in the night, I snap it, snap awake pretty quickly myself. Yeah, the, the randomness of it all was absolutely right. And you mentioned Gil Carrillo, as well as there was another investigative, <clears throat> excuse me, there's another investigative homicide officer. Frank Salerno. Yeah, Frank, Frank, yeah. Yeah. And I, one of the things that I thought was a real strength of this four-part documentary series is that you were able to tell their story as a guide through this story of this 100 plus days, almost 200 days of real terror um, that were, was taking place. And both of them very compelling. Tell me a little bit about as you got to know Gil and, and obviously you got to know Frank Salerno as well. What was it about that approach that you decided that this is the best way to tell the story? I was struck by two things. I was struck by them as individuals and I was struck by them as a partnership. Um, with Gil, you had this unexpected uh, hero I think this guy that was from the streets, you know, in East LA and was the first member of his family to even get a chance to go to college, much less, you know, become part of the sheriff's department and, and work, you know, homicide, this legendary department, much less work the case of a lifetime that would be uh, emblazoned in people's consciousness and, and etched in the history books forever. And, and he would be the guy with the hunch that it was one man behind all this. So he was this unlikely hero with this incredible arc to him. And he also had um, a stunning vulnerability to him and a willingness to access that where um, the very first time I sat down with him, you know, what many people don't realize is along with the murders or may not realize, along with the murders that were taking place, there were a series of abductions of children, um, abductions and molestations of kids that were happening in parallel. And never in criminal history had one man been uh, responsible for such a diverse and, and, and grisly and vast array of crimes. And so to even begin to get people to believe that one person could have been responsible for all this, he was facing this huge uphill battle. And then he ended up partnered with this legendary uh, homicide cop, this guy that was like homicide cop royalty from having served the hillside, having solved the hillside strangler case, you know, in the 70s and had made his name and made his reputation. And the likelihood of catching, you know, one serial killer case in a lifetime is, is rare enough, much less two of them in succession. And so Frank as the kind of, grizzled veteran who'd been through it before and had a bit of the playbook and knew the mistakes as well as the successes. And Gil as this, you know, the youngest um, member to have ever made Sheriff's Homicide in the history of the department, the Bulldogs, the department was called. And then the pairing of these two guys and how it affected them both as individuals emotionally and in human terms and how it affected their partnership and how in a way I think they ended up being the perfect pair of investigators to work this case. And it, it's interesting as you're describing them and in their and the way that you told the story uh, on screen, I don't think we see an interview with them together. They're in separate frames, I believe throughout the entire yes. series, which I thought was, you know, again, it, these are the things that make 
filmmaking such a wonderful enterprise and what makes it so interesting and compelling is it is not just the story it's the way the story is told and I thought you did a really effective job with that their story is like those are LA stories that's the other thing this is this feels very much it did take place in Los Angeles but the way you told the story again really seems to embrace the the ambiance if you will of Los Angeles and uh yeah, we were we were acutely aware of that. You know, there is this amazing um, lineage of LA crime stories and sort of film noirs. You know, whether you're whether you're dating back to Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler through James Elroy in terms of the books, there's this continuum of these stories, and this was a clearly iconic LA story. And so you're aware, okay, it fits into this lineage and how do we um, acknowledge it, claim a piece of that and be a part of that, that continuum of stories. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and even in the victims, this is a you know, cross section of, as, as we said, the demographics, not only age-wise, but by ethnicity, by all kinds of different uh, measures, this was. And it's such, it was an interesting thing that I had never been aware of. And you hear in the film, uh, Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, which, by the way, is premiering on Netflix on January 13th, so be checking this out, is that I say I say this guardedly. The way I'm going to ask this question is a guarded way, and that is, fortunately for us, psychopaths, serial killers generally do fit a pattern of behavior, victims or the way in which they perpetrate their crimes. And so, again, I was not aware that this was something completely new in the way that and I'm not sure I even want to say his name out loud, but this serial killer went about his business, which was completely unique. And also, there's a, an element to this this documentary series, and which is procedural. It's not law and order procedural, but it is very procedural in, in terms of pulling back the curtain to understand how law enforcement operates and these different alliances that they need in order to, to solve these cases. If you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that's a very interesting part of the story. Yeah, there there are a couple of you know interesting elements that you pointed out is for one thing, there had never been a serial killer in criminal history that had um, that was completely without an MO and, and worked in this patternless fashion where the victims were men, they were women, they were children. Um, they came from different parts of the city. There were different murder weapons used. Sometimes it was guns, sometimes it was knives, sometimes it was hammers. And so it, um, and then there were child abductions that were taking place in parallel to this. And then there were kids that were being abducted and molested and then released alive. And so it, it was uh, uh, without precedent in criminal history, um, such that it was a challenge from the get go when Gil had a hunch, hey, I think there's one man that's behind all this, to even convince the rest of the department that that was the case. And then, you know, what you also have to remember kind of contextually is this is 1985 where it's the pre-digital era, it's the analog days where we don't have um, DNA. There's not even a computerized fingerprint database. So when you go to match fingerprints, there are you know the forensic experts that are literally holding up prints with a magnifying glass and looking to manually match them. And, uh, and then it was across all these jurisdictions within the city. So for that reason, there was this uh, incredible, I guess, 
complexity to the investigation from, from the you know, law enforcement's perspective. And then there was also the cat and mouse with the media, you know, it's the advent of the 24 hour news cycle, right? And suddenly you've got like the story of the decade. Um, and so there's this frenzied coverage in the paper on the nightly news of, uh, you know, the, the night stalker, the serial killer. And so it, then it becomes this game of cat and mouse where the reporters, they want to get the story out at any time. The public's got this right to know, but for the cops, anything that the reporters, particularly if it's sensitive uh, evidence or data, can compromise the investigation. So there are these, you know, as you'll see in the series, these quid pro quos that are brokered. It was a fascinating um, array of divergent interests and vectors that were kind of in conflict with one another. And, and we tried to portray the complexity of that. Yeah, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with the director of this terrific documentary series called Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, and that would be Taylor Russell. And also one thing, the, the media, you mentioned the media involvement, there was competition within the media to get the a, a name that would stick, right? This is all about branding, marketing. This is the world we live in. How do you want him to be known? How is he known? And the Herald Examiner, not many people will remember, there was even such a newspaper. I do, but the Herald Examiner seemed to have won that sweepstakes somehow. And, you know. <laughs> it was, yes, it was just fascinating. I mean, it is today exactly what we call branding, right? Where every yeah. uh, every paper and every, um, uh, you know, station is trying to put their own um, stamp on the story. And so you had the Valley Intruder, the Walk-In Killer. And for a long time, you know, these people sort of persist in the nomenclature. And then, like you said, Herald Examiner, there it is in big, bold print, the Night Stalker. And as soon as that headline was out, the branding stuck. It is a remarkable part of the sort of perception of our society, the way we process information. It says a lot about us that we need that. We need something, a nomenclature we can that we can you know, hook. There you go. Well, in terms of just uh, the reaction from law enforcement, you're working with Gil and Frank and others and in, in the making of this film. What was been, what's been the reaction from them in terms of the way you went about telling the story? Because before you answer that, the film, the first two episodes of this, I felt they were very high energy, a lot of drama. It feels like just from a tonal perspective and sort of a, um, a technical perspective, there was a lot of energy in the, in the telling of the story. You, you really, there's a lot of impact, I guess is what I'm trying to get to. But as this, as the series progresses, it becomes more almost reflective, more, more measured in the way that you went about it. It was that a conscious decision on your part. It felt like you really, there was a certain arc to the, not only to the story itself, but the way in which you told the story. A very astute set of observations um, and, and a really interesting question. Yes, I think, you know, to, to your original point was, I conduct every interview in isolation because what you want is you want people to tell their stories in granular detail, every twist and turn of it. And then you want to find the points of contact so that you can interweave the different braids of the story. And so, um, and then when you're telling a past tense story like this, you know, the movies I make are sort of, you know, 360 immersive experiences where if you weren't there, if you weren't involved, if you didn't put the handcuffs on, carry the gun, lose a loved one, you're not in the movie. And so, um, 
the attempt is telling a past tense story to make it feel present tense and visceral and, and uh, driving. And so by just sharing the information that the cops have at the time or what the experiences are, the victims as, as you know, those crimes take place. Um, and then as the series goes on, you, there is a degree of reflectivity that you have because this is a story that took place 35 years ago. And so, and to some extent to really get at the truth, you know, someone once said that, you know, the newspapers are the rough draft of history, right? Right. Well, to get at the real heart of what was the cultural impact of this and why is this hung with us and, and why and what really happened and why you need a degree of distance from it. And so I think the series kind of um, allowed a bit of reflection so that, you know, 35 years later, you know, the questions are like, does this stuff still haunt you? Does it keep these cops awake at night? How do the victims contend with having been a piece of this you know, gruesome piece of LA history. And so hopefully it offers, um, as you said, both a, you know, a gripping propulsive narrative as well as um, a thoughtful assessment of why the story matters. Well, I wanna thank you so much, uh, Tiller Russell for the work here. It is uh, not only gripping and in the ways that you just described, but it is it is a slice of LA history, and to say what impact it had moving forward. I mean, uh, at the end of the film, we see how the community got involved, how much of an involvement people felt, sort of connected and invested in in what was happening. There's a lot of other things involved in in simply the you know, the actions of a sociopath, psychopath who went about uh, brutally killing so many people, maybe more than we even acknowledge or know and so it, it's it's all of that and, and more and congratulations on the netflix uh, uh, rollout for the film by the way january 13th you can begin watching this on netflix the film again is night stalker the hunt for a serial killer and we've been talking with the director and that would be tiller russell tiller thank you so much for being here today thank you so much for having me i appreciate it thank you for the thoughtful time and wishing everybody a, ha a happy and safe new year You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.